morning um, is going to be Matthew 18, uh, verses 23 to 35. We're we're actually going to cover a few different scriptures, and I'm going to be following up on what we talked about last week with the law um, and how what our relationship to the law is. So we're actually not going to get to this passage until the end of the message in uh, in a few hours. Um, but we'll go ahead and, and read it now, and we'll pray uh, for the message this morning. So there in Matthew chapter 18, um, starting at verse 23. Go ahead, let's, let's go ahead and stand, and I'll read it with you guys. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who, owned, who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from his heart um, if he does not forgive his brothers his trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, we ask God for your wisdom this morning. Lord, that you would help us to understand what you would share with us. Lord, that we would understand what forgiveness is all about, why we should forgive. Lord, but... More importantly, what our heart should be towards others, Lord, and, and why we should have a, an attitude of gratitude, gratefulness, Lord, to you, and, and therefore forgiveness towards others, towards our fellow man. We just ask, God, that you would help us to, uh, to see your truth this morning, to take these things, apply them, make real changes in our lives, Lord, this week, Lord, today, Lord, not waiting, Lord, but implementing the things that we learn from you, from your word. And we thank you, as always, Lord, just for your Holy Spirit that illuminates us, that illuminates our hearts, Lord, helps us to understand the truth of Scripture. And we give you glory and give you honor in all these things. Amen. You can be seated. Also, one last thing I, I forgot to mention was with, about Isaac Shaw. There are uh, some other podcasts and messages of his that you can listen to um, from... Some other churches, I know uh, Karen had mentioned Santa Clara Baptist Church um, and at Parkside Church, which is where Alistair Begg is the church. I know he's preached there a couple of times as well. So there are other messages. You can come and see me um, if you want to find some of his other preachings and things so you can learn a little bit more about him. So 
in the scripture, we see here, um, you know, that we, we see about forgiveness and about how much we've forgiven and how much we should forgive others. And like I mentioned, we'll, we're going to circle back around to that point um, after we discuss a few other things. But last time I was up here um, two weeks ago, we talked about how God had made a covenant with Adam, you know, and with mankind, really, with, with all of us. You know, that we were required to keep God's law perfectly in order to be saved. You know, and of course, we talked about the fact that we can't. There's just no way we could ever do that. And if you feel like you can do that, then let's talk after service. Because you might, you might not understand the full implications of what it is to follow God's law. But fortunately for us, Christ fulfilled the law, fulfilled all of it on our behalf so that we don't have to. He created a new covenant that doesn't involve us, right? So we tried the covenant with us, with fallen man. That didn't work out, and so he created a new covenant that is between himself. You know, it's within the Godhead. So we're not capable of being righteous on our own, are we? We cannot do it. The only good thing that we are able to do, the good things are by the power of who? the Holy Spirit that works within us. By learning God's word and by God's spirit that works within us, we're able to do good things, but it's not from ourselves. It's not of us. So, but even within the plan that God set out, he, where he has to do everything, he, he made a way or he decided to draw us to himself that we might have hope, that we might have salvation. Because left to ourselves, uh, Scripture is pretty clear on this, that we would, we would never seek him. We would never even want to know God. We would never forsake our sinful lifestyles in order to seek him. And that's how, that's the depth. It's hard to understand the depth uh, of our sinful hearts, of our wicked hearts. But Scripture is pretty clear about it. If you turn with me to Psalm 53, verses 2 to 3. Psalm 53, verse 2. And sorry, I don't have the outlines for you today. But I just wasn't able to get that done this week. So, but Isaac didn't have any last week, so I don't feel too bad. But you'll have them again next week with Daryl being back. The Psalm 53, verses 2 to 3. It says, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And of course, you may recognize this verbiage from Romans chapter 3. We see, we see this same sentiment repeated, echoed in the New Testament. So he says, there, is, there are none who does good. There is none who does good. Not even one. There's nobody. None of us, of fallen creatures, a fallen man, can do good. We're not capable of it. And it's interesting, you know, when we look at the Old Testament as a whole, and we, we try and understand what is the basic message, what are we there to learn from the Old Testament, um, you know, from the, you know, the Gospels we see throughout the entire Bible, the Gospel message being portrayed. But in the Old Testament, it's interesting to me, uh, and you've probably heard this pointed out before, but uh, the heroes of the Old Testament we don't just see the good side of them, do we? We don't just see 
all the the wonderful things, their faithfulness, do we? So we see with most of the, the heroes of the Old Testament, the heroes, you know, of our faith, you know, the heroes of Judaism even, uh, you see that the, the warts and the sins and the wickedness of many of those that we would call our heroes is, is exposed. So the Old Testament doesn't really hold back. You know, the Old Testament teaches us about the law, but it also is there to show us that man cannot keep it, as we talked a little bit about last time. So we see there that even the Bible heroes of the Old Testament, they fail. You know, we see that Abraham, he was a faithful man, wasn't he? But he also failed greatly, didn't he? You know, he didn't trust God uh, on many occasions. He didn't trust God with Hagar. You know, he didn't trust God when he went down um, into Egypt and those things. So he was a good man, and, and God blessed him greatly, but he failed. He made some big mistakes. Moses failed, and you know, we know that he struck the rock out of anger, and he failed to accurately represent God, and, and we know that that caused him to not be able to go into the promised land. You know, Joshua was able to go in later, but Moses was not able to go in, although the Lord was compassionate towards him and allowed him to go up to Mount Nebo and see the promised land at least, but he wasn't able to go in. We see David, he, of course, was a faithful man. He believed God's words for the most part, but he failed as well. He failed with Bathsheba. And we see, you know, and with Bathsheba and Uriah and all of those things, he failed. He was not able to uphold um, his life in sinless perfection and living according to God's law, but he, he messed up, he failed, just like we do. Jacob, as we've been talking about, Daryl's been teaching through Genesis, we see that Jacob, who is renamed Israel, he was a mess, wasn't he? I mean, he could have his own reality show today, really, and it would get good ratings. His show was, uh, or his, uh, his life was a mess. And all the relations, all the things that ha- went on there, you know, with all the, the tricks and the conniving and, and all those children that he had and grandchildren and everything, this family just became a mess. But yet that was the mess that God used, wasn't it? That was the mess that became the nation of Israel. So we see that, uh, you know, none of us are perfect. You know, everyone fails. The Old Testament heroes, they fail. You know, so they make a lot of mistakes just as we do. And we can take hope and solace in that. You know, when we look in the New Testament, we're told over and over again in the 27 books of the New Testament uh, how sinful man is, you know, how incapable we are of being holy and righteous before a holy God. So this message is, is made clear. We see it played out over and over again in all the different stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the important question is, who gets the glory for us being saved? Who gets the glory for us being, having our sins taken away, for being justified, that we might be able to go into heaven? So I'm very sorry if it disappoints you, but it's not you. We don't receive the glory for that because there's nothing that we could do to earn it, nothing that we could do to make it. You know, um, towards our, our own salvation, we're just, we're helpless. There's nothing we can do. God has to do it all. Is that a popular idea? Do people like that idea? 
Do the churches of the United States teach that idea? Does man, the world, love that idea? Not at all. We don't like that idea. We want to be able to do it ourselves. We don't like the idea that in, in the most important thing in this life of going to heaven, eternal life, we're totally helpless. God has to do it all. So this idea just screams against everything that's within us because we want to be participants in our own salvation. We want to be able to say that we did it ourselves. We want to be the captains of our own destiny, don't we? You know, we don't want that helpless feeling of not realizing that there's nothing that we can do. Every religion of the world, you know, teaches in one way or another, other than, of course, the biblical message, that we must work. We got to do something. We got to, there's part of our, our, the the onus, the burden of your salvation rests on your shoulders. You've got to do it. You've got to help carry some of that weight along with you. People will acknowledge God's grace, you know, as the, as the Catholics often do, but, but then they will toss on, on their works. You've got to work as well. And all the religions of the world are essentially that way. That's how they motivate people to be good, right? To be good citizens, because we don't want people to go out there, you know, uh, raping and pillaging and destroying and murdering and all these things. So this is how you, you put that on people, uh, you put that weight on their shoulders. You've got to be good or you're, gonna go, you're not going to go to heaven or whatever it is they teach, and that motivates people to then live a good life and to try and earn favor with God. You know, your good, we, your good deeds have to outweigh the bad deeds. But, you know, of course, the question is always, well, how much? How many good deeds do I have to do? When does that scale? I mean, where is the scale at? You know, I don't have a meter. We need one of those thermometers, you know, like they have in the and the pledge drives and things like that in churches so we can see where we are. Where is that scale at? I, I got to know. I, I got to do some good works today. But you never do know, right? You never, are, you never understand fully. You never know completely where you stand if you have enough good works to make it in. And your motives then for doing those good works is, what are your motives? It's to save yourself, right? Your motives become wrong. Your motives become selfish, you know, but it's a very humbling doctrine to think about the fact that we can't do anything, that God has to do it all. And like I said, it just, our, our, our nature screams against it. We just don't like that. But it's a very humbling thing, which is a good thing, that we would be humbled. And it elevates God to such a great extent. When you think about that idea, you know, you look at the law, our inability to keep it, the fact that God has to save us and there's nothing we can do to earn it, it elevates God and it lowers us, which is right and true. You know, anything that we can do to elevate God and lower ourselves is a good thing. But man, of course, we want to elevate ourselves and lower God, right? You know, in the way that people speak of God, you know, the man upstairs and, and all of these other things, we like to try and treat God as he's just one of us, um, but yet God should be exalted, you know, and that understanding of our salvation, that's why it's just so critical, so important. You know, when we look at the, some of the, the great, you know, men of, of the faith of the past, the reformers, um, we look at some of the things they said, it's interesting because, uh, you know, all of these things have been discussed before and the, the teachings of the Bible have, have been discussed before. And it's interesting, you know, looking at what, people in different times have thought, you know, what they have concluded about these truths of God's word. 
But Calvin, he once said, man with all his shrewdness is as stupid about understanding by himself the mysteries of God as an ass is incapable of understanding musical harmony. I kind of like that one. So that's how incapable we are of understanding the mysteries of God, of course, without his help, without the Holy Spirit enlightening us. He also said, there is no worse screen to block out the spirit than confidence in your own intelligence. So how many of you guys have that? How many of you have confidence in your own intelligence? Would you say that's a common idea of man today? That we can understand all these things. We can understand the universe, the multiverse. We created the multiverse because we can't figure out how life was created in this universe. So, of course, we create an infinite number of universes. Man is very intelligent. But there's there's no greater screen to blocking out God's work, God's spirit working in your life than confidence in your own intelligence. Luther said, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free, and you will be saved. Now choose what you want. So I choose to have Christ shoulder the burden of my sin, because otherwise I'm going to be doomed. I don't want to carry that myself, because there's no way that I can. So we get back to thinking about the law. You know, what is the purpose of the laws? Well, you know, we talked about how do we understand God's law, and it's important in how we understand it because it's a key component of the gospel, of understanding the law, why God gave it, why did God gave it to us, you know, why it is he gave it to us even though we can't keep it. You know, in all of our attempts to keep the law, we fail over and over again. How many of you guys are successful at keeping the Ten Commandments? All of you? Okay, good. How many of you can keep it for a day? I'm not raising my hand, by the way. This is just by example. (laughs) How many of us can keep it for a week, a month, a year? Just the Ten Commandments. I mean, those are pretty easy. Don't steal. Don't lie. You know, don't murder. Shouldn't be that hard. But yet, I think we can all recognize that it's a lot harder than it would seem. You know, and we think about this truth. What is the, the, the purpose of the law? It, it's discouraging. It can discourage us. But yet, isn't that kind of the point? Isn't that the point of it, that we would be discouraged? And we don't like being discouraged, right? That's, we don't like that idea or being disappointed. We live in a world that teaches us to not be discouraged, that we shouldn't ever get discouraged. You know, we live in a world that teaches us that we shouldn't ever have to be disappointed. You know, being disappointed can be a bad thing. That's why, you know, kids in sports nowadays, everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets first place. You know, we're all the best. You know, it's not really true, but we don't want anybody to be disappointed. We don't want anybody to walk away sad and realizing, man, somebody else did a better job than me today. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that I can be disappointed. It's okay. I can be a little discouraged. I can get a little bit down about these things because that disappointment helps to check our arrogant pride. And we know that pride's one of the seven deadly sins, right? So disappointment can be a good thing. It can be something that teaches us. And that, I think, is part of the, or is one of the main reasons for the law, that we could look at the law and trying to keep it, it teaches us of our inability 
You know, there, there might be a disappointment there, that a discouragement. We can't keep, it's too difficult to burden. But yet that disappointment, that discouragement can drive us to recognizing, I can't do it. And you have to call upon God. You, God wants you to come to that place. I have no other options but to call upon you, Lord. You know, it shows us that we just can't do it on our own. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, it says uh, much of this message. It says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So we see from Galatians 3, 23 through 25 here, that the law is a tutor for us, right? It's our schoolmaster, as it's translated in the Old King James. I like that term, the schoolmaster. It's there to teach us, to help us to recognize that we can't do it on our own. It's to help us to recognize our own sinfulness, to show us our need for Christ. You know, when Christ was teaching, when he taught the group, you know, taught the masses, um, uh, the different groups that he taught as he began his ministry, um, you know, he hadn't been fully revealed yet. They were still under the law. The gospel hadn't been fully made known yet. You know, the idea of God's grace, that we're going to be saved by God's grace, hadn't been fully revealed yet. But the law, you know, we talked last week about the rich young ruler, and the law, in his case, was that schoolmaster, it was that tutor that he might be able to recognize there's no way I can do this on my own. I cannot keep the law. Here, I, I, think, I, I think I've been doing a pretty good job. You know, I haven't, I haven't committed this sin. I haven't lied. I haven't cheated. You know, I'm a good guy. But he needed to be driven to that place, didn't he, of understanding, no, there's no way you can do it. There's no way you can keep it. In order for us to be saved, we first have to recognize our own sin and our own helpless situation, you know, that we cannot save ourselves. We have to recognize our complete inability to keep the law, no matter how hard we try. So as we've talked about, this isn't a popular idea, even within the modern church. It's not something that people like, but Our pride has to be wrecked. It has to be destroyed. We have to recognize that we just cannot do it on our own. So many, you know, believe that even though we have the law and we we have salvation, that we need to continue to keep it, you know, continue to keep the law. However, we have to recognize that it's finished. Christ has accomplished everything. He's done it all. You know, he said, uh, to tell us die, it is finished when he was there up on the cross. It's done. There's nothing left for us to do. You know, we can't add the tiniest little morsel, the tiniest little bit to our salvation. Try as we might. So should we keep the moral law? You know, I mentioned earlier about the Ten Commandments. Should we do that? If there's nothing left for us to do, then what should we do? We can just kind of do whatever we want, right? Well, the Bible doesn't doesn't really say that either, but it kind of comes down to a question of our, our, our goals, our, our motives, what's motivating us. You know, we should, of course, keep the Ten Commandments because why? Because we want to please God, because we're 
He's done so much for us. We're grateful to him. It reveals God's morality to us. And that's why he gave it to them there in the wilderness so that the people could see what God's morality was all about. It reveals that morality to us. It shows us what God would do, his character. You know, it shows us what Christ would have us to do. And it's not that we have to keep it. That's kind of one of the points of all this. We can keep it. God has done everything. It's not that we have to keep it. It's that we get to. It's that we get to do the things that God would have have us to do. You know, we get to do, we get to keep the law and we get to live in a way that pleases him by the power, you know, of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's moralists and pietists out there who cringe at this idea because we, we want to pride ourselves in being able to keep all these rules and regulations, you know, much as we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, we want to pride ourselves in being able to keep the law. I did it. I didn't lie today. You know, I didn't cheat anybody today. We want to be able to say that, but yet if we truly understand, you know, the gospel, our salvation, we won't be able to do that. We can't take any credit for it. You know, it's only to God's glory So many like to mix together the idea of keeping the law and the gospel. You know, they teach that good works, you know, are are required for us to be saved or required for us to really please God. But hopefully when we recognize all that he's done for us, we will want to do what pleases God. And we will want to do what God would have us to do. You know, it's our desire. it's It's our joy. It's a pleasure for us to be able to serve him. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Christ said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and whoever says to his brother raka shall be in danger of the council but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire so you look at this and it's it's just amazing the sermon on the mount and you see who among us you know can stick to these standards that jesus has laid out so it's not only we have to do the right things and keep the law outwardly but in, in our heart, it matters as well. If we've sinned in our heart, we've still sinned, right? We've still done wrong. You know, so the moralists among us believe we can do it. We can keep it. We can keep the law and ple- therefore please God through that. But even within our hearts, <laughs> you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, but you have to exceed their righteousness. Even in our hearts, we have to have it right. We have to have our, the right attitude you know, which is a much, much higher standard than anyone else gives. There's no religion of the world that teaches that that I know of. As long as you do the right thing, that's what matters. But he's saying, here, you've got to do it and have the right heart about it, which I don't know about you. 
But as soon as I read that, I think to myself, man, <laughs> there's no way I could do that. No way. I could, I could maybe do the right thing, but uh, I'm not going to be able to do it with the right heart. But maybe you guys are, are better than me, but, um, but I couldn't do that. That's a, that's a requirement that just goes above and beyond. And for them to hear those words, you know, exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees must have been quite a shock because they were seen as the people that were extremely righteous. They had it all together. They had it all figured out. And they kept that law perfectly, as far as anyone could tell. So to tell them that they would have to exceed it, uh, boy, that would be a tough thing to do, a tough requirement to meet. Ehrlich Zwingli, I think that's how you say it. He's uh, another one of the early reformers. He said, Christ is our justification from which follows that our good works, if they are Christ's, if they are of Christ, are good. But if ours, they are neither right or good. So even if we do good works, as, as much as being said here in the Sermon on the Mount, if they're from us, then they're still no good. We still haven't done anything good. It's got to, it only can be from the Lord if it comes from him, which is why we want to be motivated by him, by, by the joy that he brings to us, the joy of our salvation. It would motivate us to do the good things because if it comes from our own wicked hearts, it's still not going to be good and wholesome and true. So the final question I want to ask, want to throw out there is what should our response to this be? How should these truths affect us in recognizing what the law is all about and how we relate to it, recognizing what the gospel is all about? You know, hopefully it would cause us to be very grateful people. It causes us to be people that have a great grace towards others. Let's read in that scripture that I referenced earlier from Matthew 18. You know, he says there, he talks about the story, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain man who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And we see there that the master had great compassion on him, right? This man that had this great debt, a debt greater than probably just about anybody could pay. And certainly he had no ability to pay it. And yet we see that this man's response was not one of compassion. He was shown great compassion, and then he did what with that? He showed contempt, and he held others to the account, you know, to fully account for themselves under the law, right? Now, was he wrong after being forgiven all this? Was it within his rights, I should say, for him to require that those that owed money to him pay him back? And that was fully within his rights, right? I mean, they did owe him money. He could go request uh, that it be paid back. But he failed in understanding how much he had been forgiven and that he, you know, Christ is telling us there that we should have a heart Forgiveness. So as we, we think about these truths and we look out at our relationships with others, you know, we should have a heart of grace towards others, you know, recognizing that we failed. So when other people fail us, are people going to fail you in your life? Are people going to do wrong things to you? Are they going to sin against you? Well, if you live in Palmdale, that's going to happen. I hate to tell you. It's going to happen around here. Maybe in Oklahoma City, that's not a problem. I don't know. But around here, it's a problem. 
People are going to sin against you, aren't they? Even those that are believers, even those that say that they love you, even those within this body right here at Brian Fellowship are going to do things, they're going to wrong you. They might say things about you that are wrong. They might do things to you or, you know, who knows? You can imagine the different things that could happen, but people will sin against you. We are not perfect. We're sinful creatures. But the more we understand the debt that we've been forgiven, the more we should be forgiving towards others. But are you? Are you a forgiving person? Ask yourself that question right now. Do you find it easy to forgive others? Are you quick to forgive when people have wronged you? You know, if you're married, do you forgive your husband or your wife easily? Or is it very difficult for you to forgive? You know, we want to be a people that are quick to forgive and that don't hold these grudges. You know, what about your parents? Some of you may have had parental situations or situations in which your parents were terrible. They may have been total jerks towards you, you know, as a child growing up. You know, there's a lot of messed up families. We talked about Jacob earlier. Uh, It was a pretty messed up family. There's a lot of messed up families out there, aren't there? But how do we respond to these things? You know, how do we respond when people do bad things to us? Do we allow these truths to transform our attitude, our relationships with others? You know, or do we hold, it, hold those grudges? Do we find it difficult to forgive? Well, you know what? What's the a, what's a solution to that? The more we understand what we've been forgiven, the more we will have a heart to forgive. The more we understand the grace that God has shown us, the more that we understand the gospel, the lengths to which God went to, um, to save us, the more we will desire to forgive others, the more we'll find it easy to forgive others because we recognize what? We recognize how much we've been forgiven. We realize how grave our sin is, you know, that all that God has done for us. But may we be a people that have that grateful heart, the heart of gratitude, you know, not like the the man who wouldn't forgive others, but like the man or the woman that will forgive. You know, may we have a, a heart that is grateful towards others. May we as children, maybe we did have those parents that weren't the best parents, but there's still a lot that we can be grateful for, isn't there? A lot that we can be thankful for. They still probably did a lot of things for us, and they still took care of us. And many of us within this body, you know, there's much that we can be thankful for and that we can be grateful for. You know, because there's just not... Uh, an ungrateful person, is that a person you want to be around? Is that a person that you want to be best friends with? Someone who's not grateful about anything? I don't know about you, but the people that I've known that are very ungrateful usually aren't that much fun to hang out with. Um, But we want to be grateful for everything. The more we understand, and it's not something that we can understand on one Sunday or after one message or reading one passage. It's something we continually learn, we continually understand the the depth, you know, of our own sin and the depth to which, the lengths to which Christ went to, to forgive us, to make a way, to make a path that we might be saved. It's an amazing thing that should cause great joy in us and great 
um, gratefulness in our hearts. So we do want to be people that are patient and forbearing with one another, you know, have compassion upon others and, you know, recognize what God has done for us. Meditate on these passages, you know, that talk about the greatness of God, how much he's forgiven us, that talk about the gospel. And the more we meditate on these truths, the more it will change us. It will change us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about how we can be transformed, you know, much as the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. It's a completely different creature, completely changed. And we can be transformed by these truths. The more we study the gospel, the more we study and recognize what God has done for us, the more it would change our attitude and help us to live in a more Christ-like way. So understanding the law, you know, that covenant of works that we talked about, and the great lengths to which God went to, to save us, it will change us. It will change our hearts and change our attitudes and give us a very grateful heart, a very compassionate heart that we would uh, be able to forgive others when they've sinned against us, especially me. So just make sure you guys are forgiving towards me because I mess up all the time. But may we be that people, may we, when we think about you know, God's law and, and as we read it. And one of the reasons I wanted to, to, to go over this is just to understand that relationship, you know, of God's law. What is the purpose? You know, what are we supposed to learn? And these passages we see in the New Testament could be kind of perplexing when we look at them because it sounds kind of like a downer, sounds like kind of a bummer, but that's part of the, part of, I think, what God would have us to learn there is that Keeping the law is beyond us. It's beyond our capabilities. It's beyond our, our abilities to do it. But thank God that he has done it for us. He has kept the law on our behalf that we don't have to. His righteousness is then imputed to us. A doctrine of, of imputation where he has given it to us. And we can praise God for that, you know, as long as we're here on this earth and even beyond. And we can continue to praise him for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you uh, for this day and this morning and the opportunity, God, to just praise you and to recognize, Lord, the great and awesome things that you've done for us. Lord, helping us to understand our relationship to the law. Lord, what the gospel is truly all about. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that and help us to be a people that give glory to you, Lord, that are thankful and ever grateful unto you, Lord. And that we would be a people that are are forgiving just as we have been forgiven so much. Lord, we just uh, give you glory and give you honor and praise your name in all these things. Amen.